I've heard it's like the Dr. Bronner's, like uh, the one cure-all for receding hairlines is what beer is. So I hear that's why so many men drink it. So yeah, let, let me write not, that down again. Sorry. It's not working for either one of us. So I'll tell you that right now. Welcome to the Pints and Pews podcast. I'm your co-host, Dennis. And I'm your other co-host, Robert. And we're just a couple guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite beers. So why don't you pour yourself a pint, pull up a chair, and listen in for the next little while. As we take the faith seriously, but not necessarily ourselves. And as always, if you want to take part in the conversation or have an idea for the podcast, leave us a comment or swing by our Facebook page and drop us a message. Dennis, buddy, how are you doing this evening? Good, Robert. Getting a little chilly here in Toronto area, is it not? Felt it was really a little cold today. Cold on the weekend. I was going to say it was a borderline ducal kind of day. Yeah, it was today. a ducal kind of day. That's right. Do you have a ducal today? No, no, I don't have a ducal for us today. I know. What's I felt that? a lot of pressure trying to pick a beer because of our guest. You know what I mean? Like just the title of his book. And I'm thinking, geez, I better pick the right beer. So and he has a whole chapter in there where he talks about the the art of craft beer. So the art of craft beers, yes. And Michael, kind of exciting some of the statistics he threw in that book too. We'll have to get to those hopefully later when you introduce our guest. But, you remember um, all of the numbers from there? I did. I wrote a few down because my memory, like you know, I know you're getting old, and I'm almost getting as old as you. So I had to write a few statistics down. But yeah, it was kind of shocking the number, the growth of the micro. So, so your your memory's kind of like your hairline; it's receding. <laughs> Right. It's just the light in the room, Robert. It just shines on my head at a certain angle. Right. You're gonna have to tilt your your computer camera there because the glare is uh it's the halo over my head. It's a little tilted and dented that halo, my my friend. <laughs> but it's all good. It's all good. I know kind of borderline dunkel kind of day. And yep. I just wanted to throw out there before I read the bio for our guest today. I uh, think of Dunkels. Today is the feast day, as we're recording this, the feast day of St. Hedwig. Mm-hmm. And most people think of St. Hedwig uh, and the Polish connection, but St. Hedwig was born in Andex. And for those listeners who pay better attention than the co-host, know that we've mentioned Andex a few times here on the podcast. We have? We've mentioned Poland a few times. I don't remember Andex. We've, we've mentioned Andex a few times. And I was going to send you there this summer when you were through Munich, but you didn't stay long enough. No, but I didn't. Andex no. is about a half hour train ride southwest of Munich. And it is now very well known in the area for its Klosterbier. It's a, yes. a great Benedictine abbey. Mm. And they have this wonderful beer garden. They brew this great beer. Uh, I had the delight and honor to live in the next village. So I was in Endex any number of times and knew nothing about St. Hedwig when I was mm. there. Can but you I knew, spell all, I knew all about A N D E C H S. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Right. I don't um, know, yeah, I didn't know me, much about uh, St. Hedwig, but I knew all about their dunkel. I had no idea. I just assumed she was Polish through and through. No, no. So hmm. that's mind uh, you, that's about eight, seven, eight hundred years ago, and I guess all the borders were not what they are today. I, I would assume. It's pretty South Bavaria. It's not really that close okay. to Poland. Yeah. But anyways, as always, I digress. So mm. I will introduce our guest here yes, today. And with his name as well, there is a bit of a German connection in there. Yes, I believe, so. I'd love to pronounce that last name. So hopefully I get it correct, but uh, Trevor Gundlach holds a master's degree in theological studies from the University of Dayton. He is an author, project manager, public speaker, and young adult minister. 
Trevor is a regular speaker at Theology on Tap, and his research on celebration, fulfillment, and the theology of beer drinking has sparked interest across the Midwest and has caught our attention up here in Canada. Trevor, his wife, and their three children live in Dayton, Ohio, where they find God in the beauty of nature and the sharing of craft beers. Well, at least I'm pretty sure it's just Trevor and his wife that share the craft beers and mm. the three kids. Let's hope so. The only surprise in Trevor's bio I found here, Dennis, is that it has taken us this long to invite the author of Barstool Theology mm-hmm. onto the Pints and Pews podcast. So, Trevor, servus, krustig, hello. Welcome to the Pints and Pews podcast. Welcome, Trevor. Yeah, thank you for having me. I I know that when you start by saying you don't take yourselves too seriously, but you take the faith seriously, like they must have read the book. That's the intro hook, the story about not taking yourself too seriously. So yes. I think we're off on the right foot here. Yeah. What a great name for a book to uh, Trevor Barstool Theology. Oh, thank you. It kind of just had a ring to it, right? I had a much less exciting name and my publisher was like, you use this phrase in your first like in your introduction, why don't you just use this as the title? And it was just one of those face palm moments, like, oh, I missed it. Like, they got it. But, hey, it was there. They mined it. We're good to go. Yeah. Well, and I love the title of it, too, because it's a little bit the genesis here of the Pines and Pews podcast, as we were chatting about before mm-hmm. we got started here, that, you know, kind of Dennis and I and a few other like-minded Catholic gentlemen used to get together in the local pub and over a beer talk about our Catholic faith. And so we were kind of used to the barstool theology. Except we were sitting at tables in the bar instead of, uh, you know, at the stool at the bar itself. But yeah, very close. No, that's okay. It's one of those experiences that just about anyone can resonate with. Like you just start a sentence with, hey, have you ever been at a bar and had a conversation about theology that you didn't see coming? And most people have a either a head nod of hesitation, like, oh, I have a story to tell you, or other people respond quite excitedly, like, oh, yeah, that happened to me the other week. So <laughs> either way, someone has a story. Absolutely. Now, Trevor, we need to ask as we get started here, sir, what did you bring to, to drink for? For us tonight, we're we're actually quite interested in this. Again, someone who's written about the art of craft brewing would love to know what you you have in your pint glass today. Yeah, you you can't judge me for this. I know anyone who's like, oh, it's a book on theology and alcohol. It's going to be something really kind of snooty. Point, push up your glasses, and it is. I, I feel bad. I'm just giving myself a bad rep. Uh, my brother-in-law, I convinced him and his wife and his kid to move to our neighborhood. Uh, mm. They were about an hour and a half away, and they moved a handful of months ago. And he's an avid home brewer, and I, that was my only motive for inviting him to live in our neighborhood. Okay, we have to we have to set that straight. But a couple weeks ago, uh, my daughter and I went over and we brewed a light lager with him kind of a end of the summer season transitioning into fall we've had all of our family vacations uh some of us are taking breaks from uh having drinks as frequently in the summer months as kind of switch to tea season right mm-hmm. sit around mm-hmm. and chat with each other and um and so we, we he made me poured me a growler of this i brought it home and uh, here we are having this light lager a nice a growler Very too nice. I miss the growlers, Robert. You had them up at your little local up there in Port Perry. Yeah, the, they, the, the local craft breweries seem to have gotten away from the growlers. I know. Remember you oh, brought me one a couple of years ago. I love the size of that growler. Hard to do in one sitting, but anyhow. 
they're not very cost effective. Like I ran the math on them. They're useful though. Mm-hmm. When your friends are home brewers though, that's about the yeah. main use I can find for them. You know, it's sure, always, it's sure. always good to have someone close by who's uh, a good home brewer. Uh, I know a number of the smaller craft breweries, that's actually how they started. They started brewing mm-hmm. in their basement for themselves. And then people said, well, you, you need to market this. And they kind of take that next step. So, yeah, it's good. Uh, we need something when we're watching the Packers. So that's right. Without without Aaron Rodgers, so your your book needs to be updated a little bit there. Uh, oh. I know. I'm looking at that thinking, of course. Well, back at you know, a few four four years ago, I guess he was playing with Green Bay, but now, well, he's on the injured list. But anyhow, I had to pour my beer, Trevor, because if I don't, then Robert digresses, and we don't get to prayer, and we don't actually get to drink the beer. So, so I what do you have, Dennis? Along. I have from the Lindsay Brewing Company, Robert. I had You've had Amber. from them before. I have. I had it about a month ago, and this was the second one that my friend Dan bought you got, me. you got to love when you break out the reading glasses to be able to see the label. This is this is Lock 33 in Lindsay, which is just about an hour northeast of Toronto. It's located on the Trent Severn Waterway, which you can get through the Great Lakes right to the Atlantic Ocean, if you wish, on the Scugog River. There you go, Robert. That's right up in your territory in Scugog. Buddy, I live like 30 steps from Lake Scugog. I sincerely hope they did not brew that beer with the same water that comes out of Lake Scugog. <laughs> Let's hope they filtered it. And a sawmill was built here in 1828. That's that was two- about the year you graduated from high school too, pa. <laughs> that was almost 200 years ago, my friend. Come on. But look at the color of that. Isn't that, isn't that a golden hue mm-hmm. to it? That looks about the same color as the water that comes out of Lake Scugot, but that's, yeah. <laughs> I hope there's not too much sediment in the bottom. And of it's made with water, barley, hops, and yeast. And I like, I wanted to mention that just because of the whole hops thing in the book, which I hope Trevor will touch upon the use of hops and beer. Robert, what do you have tonight? So I have from the Sons of Kent Brewery, which is in Chatham, Ontario, which is, you can literally see Michigan across the, the river from hmm. there. Um, a Festbia, because I thought, you know, we're in October, we're probably getting to the end of Oktoberfest season, mm-hmm. because that always kind of shook my head at that. Oktoberfest starts in September, but that's okay. Anytime you can extend the, the drinking season, that's okay. I didn't uh, know that. And again, too, with it being uh, the Feast of St. Hedwig from Andex in Bavaria and the, the big Oktoberfest season. And the label of this beer, too, is the Bavarian flag, the, the blue and white. I'm just glad you didn't say sons of something else, but that's good. That color of beer is absolutely just like the perfect. Yes. Look at that. A nice. That's great. That's a little bit of a big head, but you know what? A lot of those European, I remember pouring beers in Australia and you had to pour the wheat beers with the big head, but anyhow. Oh, the, the wheat beers, you're always, always, always going to get way more of that. Head. Yeah. They just seem to explode out of the bottle. Yeah. Here's but we need taste. to get the first sip here, buddy. So we do. Because we need it's to say prayer. Yeah. Um, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of, Son the, Holy and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bless, O Lord, this creature beer which thou hast deigned to produce from the fat of grain, that it may be a salutary remedy to the human race, and grant through the invocation of thy holy name that whoever shall drink it may gain health in body and peace in soul. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Amen. Father, and of the Son, and the Amen. Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Cheers, Cheers, gentlemen. Trevor, Robert. Cheers.
Oh, that's everything that's nice. a Bavarian yeah. lager is supposed mm. to be. So good. Okay. I'll tell my brother-in-law, but we have some work to do. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. It's uh, you know, the experimentation and the taste yeah. testing mm-hmm. and all of that. That's the, the best part that's of part of it, brewing. isn't it? Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It's more of the time spent around the, the mash kettle, the time egg right. in it. And then the time sharing it together, so with friends and family. Yeah, I've never been brave enough to to homebrew beer, but uh, I've been known to get the odd pail of grape juice and uh, throw the yeast in that and get the wine going. So. Yeah. Well, listen, Trevor, this is uh, the part of the show where we get out of the way and I unle- unleash my uh, inner Marcus Grodi and tell you and ask you to um, go back and tell us a little bit about your faith journey, wherever you want to begin and as far ahead as you want to go. No, he's telling you to tell the story. That's what he's saying. <laughs> tell the story. No, I appreciate that. It's always great to have a chance to reflect in this kind of way because I'm reflecting a lot these days with, I've got three kids, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, an almost four-year-old, two and a half and a six-month-old. So oh. my wife and I are constantly thinking, having conversations of how do we want to create a space in our home that is one of faith, uh, our local church within these four walls, and how do we create that space for our kids uh, and really instill some of those virtues in them. So as I reflect back, my best example I have is from my parents. So really growing up, my parents created a space in our house that was one of faith, uh, rooted in our Catholic faith. So we went to Mass every Sunday. My dad taught our CIA uh, at our church. My mom was incredibly involved with uh, a group of Dominican sisters nearby that also ran our high school. And this I thought this was very common growing up. Only looking back, did I, do I realize that this is this that was really uncommon? And we would pray at the beginning of every meal with a prayer of thanksgiving, where we would each go around and say what we were grateful for so far that day, and we would end every meal with prayers of petition. Uh, we call it the prayer cup. It was an old Yahtzee cup that my dad would write prayers on individual business cards that he would always carry with him. And we would cycle through those. So at the beginning of every meal, uh, Thanksgiving, end of every meal petition. And then end of every day, we would have a three-in-one kind of a trifecta prayer. We, we would always go around as a family and say some things we were grateful for, things we would ask forgiveness for, which being one of four boys is not something we oftentimes like to admit. <laughs> and, uh, and then what we prayed for for the next day. So it was incredible when I look back at the structure at it. And I'm a very structured person now. I realize I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, I think in bullet points, my wife thinks in stories. And I think that was really instilled purposefully from my parents. And uh, so that was my faith growing up for the longest time. I remember my wife always jokes or makes fun of me that I don't have too many childhood memories. And I'm like, I think it was so repetitive and so structured that each day was essentially the same structure that we went through. And that wasn't better or worse. Like we didn't really go on vacations. We didn't go on big trips. Uh, We couldn't travel for various reasons because of uh, illness in my family and certain restrictions with diet and other things. Uh, But we were pretty much localized to our home church 
being my family and my three brothers and I, my parents. So and this is, sorry, this is in Wisconsin, right? This isn't in Dayton. This is in Wisconsin, right? Uh, Correct. Yeah. yeah. Just south of Milwaukee. So we're right on the lake. Uh, We were really involved in Boy Scouts a lot and camping growing up. And we encountered, now I put the language to it. We encountered God through nature a lot and encountered God through God's creation. And as I, as I'll get into in my book later, that was one of those seeds that was planted as I was really young of my dad would ride his bike to work. I think it was 85% of the year, which if you, again, you're in, in Canada, Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin. we know. Well, yeah. yeah, that's difficult. It was wild. Like there'd be snow on the ground and he would be riding. And it was his way of just connecting each morning with breathing that air, being present to what's around him. Uh, so my parents were that initial example. And in high school, I kind of was like, ah, oh, this is my thing. But also I never lost it. I never stepped away from it. It was just not the exciting spark at the time. Uh, and then it was really fascinating because when I went to college, I went to Marquette University which my brother was the trailblazer. He went there first and that's run by the Jesuit priests. And he joined the Jesuits then, uh, which is where he is right now. And he's doing incredible work with them. That was a deep inspiration for me. But in that phase of life, I was really reflecting. I wanted to be an engineer, which was fascinating. Uh, my dad's an engineer. He's an inventor. Uh, but as I got into that stud- those studies, I just realized this isn't my calling. And I love the structure of engineering, but not the mathematics as much. I loved it in high school, but not then. So when I was in college, I had spent this time where I'm like, I'm going to switch to theology. My brother did it, but I knew I wasn't called to the priesthood. So I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to teach theology because really in the church, there's very limited options if you're not a priest for what you can do uh, with a theology degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, or I guess I wasn't creative enough at the time, but I was doing theology and philosophy, and I really fell in love with that. I felt like for the first time I could think, I could communicate clearly. Uh, I fell in love with reading. I didn't realize how much I became addicted to reading just as a means of taking in information. And I loved having those conversations with people. But in this parallel path, I was also never introduced to alcohol growing up. So when I hit college, there was this time of, oh my gosh, like there's this place now with all of these people where I can go out and use the substance that was never even in my house. Um, Not because it was evil. It was just something my parents, they had negative relationships because of other family relationships with it. So Mm -hmm. they never, I think my dad drinks one drink a year on Christmas Eve. And my mom, I've seen probably have eight glasses of wine total. Uh, So they just choose not to drink. So when I got to college, it was very much like, whoa, I could go crazy. Like a lot of kids, there's just this explosion. Yeah. Yeah. And mine was kind of like a shielding from it. There was no healthy introduction to it. There was no relationship. There wasn't a negative relationship. It wasn't positive. Just absolutely no relationship. Mm -hmm. So my relationship with it became very much that of a freshman in college, right? One you would expect of uh, abusing it, not really understanding its impact that it could have on me, on my relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I quickly realized, ooh, I need to take a step back from this. But the beautiful thing is that in the midst of all those experiences, um, kind of those younger son in the prodigal son story, right? I related a lot to that story at the time as I I was going to that no place or the place where he was uh, becoming lost. 
I was there with other people, these really close friends of mine who are still two of my best friends to this day. So I went and led a summer camp that summer, uh, Catholic Youth Expeditions. It was in northern Wisconsin. And after that summer, I kind of came back and I realized I need to change my priorities. Uh, if you think philosophically, I need to change my my telos or telos or my my end, my purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, I just don't have one right now. And it's fascinating because my my faith journey at that time, which you asked from me, and my alcohol journey um, really converged in a very unusual way. And that's why this book just seemed like a natural convergence for me was that I was asking this question. A lot of the social relationships in college did center around alcohol that I, I could hide from that, but it was something that I said, no, I, this is something that will continue throughout my life. I've seen being beneficial in my brother's life. Um, I've seen it in my parents' lives in ways that their friends would invite them to things and they would feel uncomfortable. So they wouldn't go. Um, so I saw it as a barrier to entry, but also a really beautiful bridge. So I challenged those friends. And I said, what if we explored this relationship between faith and alcohol, not as the only thing we do in college, right? We're still hanging out and not drinking, but what if we took those Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night experiences, which is when many of the campus bars are most packed and we change our end or our purpose. And we focus on the friendship piece. We focus on the craft piece. Uh, we were right at the peak of the craft beer movement too, right then. So we got to ride that wave. Uh, well, if we talked about celebrating people instead and each year this developed and more and more people got enthralled by the concept. Uh, so when I went to the university of Dayton, Italy, made sense to make it my graduate thesis topic to do research on it, to really have the conversation with students um, because no one else was. I actually was told not to have the conversation uh, when it's a really important one. So my personal faith journey converged at many points there. And most recently now, uh, it's been fascinating because I had some really on-fire moments in my faith in college. I was teaching. I was working for the archdiocese in some ways. Um, but it was, I kind of had blinders on a little bit. I was really on fire for certain elements of the faith and not all. And I think I then tempered that with uh Jesuit education, which really approaches finding God in all things and really finding this beautiful, um, what's traditional of church teaching, what the catechism says and what the mother church teaches, but then also what the voices in the church are saying too, and having, and also what voices of people on the trail outside are saying, uh, going on hikes or people at the bar are saying, and, I know I sound very Jesuit saying that, and some of my friends would give me a hard time for that, but it became very real, real and alive. And now being a parent, it all changed, right? Uh, I'm not in theology anymore, formally. I do business. Uh, I do. I manage. I lead project managers and mentor and do leadership development. And I find that I do even more theology now than I did before, hmm, uh, serving, serving those in this business setting. And at home, everything changes when you try and potty train a toddler, right? All concepts 100%. of theology and church just kind of goes out the window like, hey, right now, we're going to figure it out. And we're going to talk about our faith as much as we can, but we're going to do it in a really real way. 
and I'm going to connect not with all these friends like I had in this idealistic college state or even graduate state or right after that. I'm in a neighborhood and I need to connect with the people around me, my coworkers and my immediate family. So it is a journey for sure. But right now it's this very realistic. Uh, what does today bring for me serving my family? And how do I do that in a way that's Christ-like? And how do I introduce them to the concepts that my parents taught me? And it's, I always find it so amazing how theology just intertwines itself with all of the different facets of life. As you were talking about as being a, you know, a project manager or leading people who are, who are project managers, as well as potty training, that even though there is an explicit theology that is brought to those conversations, there is theology that goes into how we live our daily lives on so many different levels, right? People are itching for this level of depth that for some reason or another, they've been told they can't explore in certain environments, like in the business environment. They're like, well, I don't know if you can ask those types of questions. And thankfully, we're a faith-based Christian organization doing healthcare, which is service, right? Uh, we already use some of the same language that we hear in the works of mercy, things that we hear mm-hmm. about uh, that the church supports and is very much behind. So I have freedom to use that language, uh, to lead retreats with our leaders, to reflect at a deep level. But before I brought these things up, they were novel concepts. I'm like, wait, this is normal from the world I come in in theology. And they're like, that is uh, a breath of fresh air here. So it more makes me sad for all the spaces where that are kind of stagnant because the theologizing or philosophizing of the space has not occurred. But that's just a personal quality. Yeah, that was my next question, how you're able to bring it into your leadership development. But you do say it is a faith-based organization. It's not secular. So you're able, just like myself and Robert, when, you know, when Robert's retired now, but when we were both teaching, it was within a Catholic school environment. So we're able to bring that in the faith into the classroom. Yeah, we were very yeah. blessed for that. And yeah. kind of what Trevor, you were just saying too, is that I always saw with the kids in high school, they were itching to know the truth. They they could feel the void. As St. Augustine says, you know, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, that there's a, a, a God-shaped void in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And I think people in the adult world see that as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so God bless you that you're able to step in and help them realize that even though religion a lot of times is a taboo subject, it really can fit into how we lead our daily life. Yeah, it has to be. It gives us a common language too. And I, you, I don't use the term theology as much as philosophy because I think that's a more approachable term, even though it's truly theological underlying it. People may may think, oh no, I can I can talk about that. I'm being a deep critical thinker. And there's lots of ways that people have repackaged these ideas. I'm like, oh, we've given that a name and that's God. <laughs> like that source yeah, of yeah. love and joy. Hey, we have a relationship with that. You can too. But if not, you can stay at that point too. And if that's where you're comfortable, let's hang out there because we're both being paid to work here in a very specific setting, right? I don't want to infringe at certain points, but It is neat to explore those spaces at work. I know you're going to touch upon your book shortly, but just to get to the nitty gritty of beer, because I'm really interested in this because Robert is a big fan of these types of beers. But you mentioned when you do talk about maybe IPAs and the whole Indian, that's a fascinating little story in there. And the fact that 
hops aren't really a necessary ingredient in beer, which I never knew. And I know Robert is a huge fan of the IPAs, not so much now as we're heading into fall and winter, but in the summer, he's a big fan. So maybe before you get into the whole, you know, genesis of the book, just the little story about what is in beer and why hops aren't necessary. Yeah, I love how you read the label earlier. I thought you were doing that to, to poke fun at Robert saying, hey, these are the four things in beer. Because I'm like, wait, of course, those are the four things in beer. Uh, but the water is really important, right? Uh, starting with Just not Skugog water. But yeah. Not, yeah, exactly. Yeah, stay far away from the Skugog. I've learned that. That's important. Uh, it's like any of the lakes in Ohio. I don't think, yeah. I think all of them are man-made. You just stay away from those. Stay away They're, from them, okay. Too much algae, uh, but the water—you've got the the barley or whatever type of mm-hmm. malt you use, whatever you extract the sugars from. Uh, you've got the yeast, uh, which again you can use different strains, and then the hops. And really, hops is a preservative. Uh, it's just a way of adding longevity to the beer, and it adds that distinctive aroma. Uh, if you add it earlier, you get different types of sweetness, uh, more in the back of the palate, more of a thicker flavor. If you add it later on, you get much more in the nose. Uh, you just get totally different things. You can dry hop it later. So there's all these fun things that people do with it. But honestly, it when it comes down to it, beer can just be made with the syrup. The, because essentially all you need to make alcohol is the water, right? That is the the host. And then something that's going to some type of sugar that's going to be eaten up and turned into alcohol. And then the yeast essentially just eats the sugar and then poops out two things, carbon dioxide and alcohol. And if you think about that process that's happening, it's a very scientific process. The hops serve no purpose in that process. Uh, they might actually not stifle it, but they they're just an additive at that point. Uh, they do add, give it that longevity. So technically we could get away without using it. There are some beers that have very minimal levels. I think people are used to it now in the palate. Uh, but yeah, it was used for sending ships, shiploads of beer uh, from the British Isles to um, India mm-hmm. and for the soldiers there. And they got that distinctive taste that they I guess learn to love. Who knows what they were drinking then? Mm-hmm. Just so it didn't go off uh, over the course of weeks on the boat, type thing. Yeah. And yeah what I yeah. find though too is that the craft beer or the craft brewery IPAs. I don't know if it's a competition as to how sour you can get the beer and citrusy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And there are times where I found it's, it has just gone overboard, and. I was listening to you had an interview on uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio from uh, a while ago when the book first came out. And I loved it. You had this one line in there. You know, sometimes you just want to have a beer that tastes like a beer. Right. And as we're getting into the Christmas season, there's going to be the gingerbread beer and the carrot cake mm-hmm. beer. Reverse and, favorite gingerbread beer. Yeah. Oh, that, <laughs> that, that is the only beer I actually contemplated pouring down the drain. I it think was that's the disgusting. only beer you gave back to me, didn't you? Ooh. I did. Dennis gave yeah. me like three or four tins of this beer. I had half and then the other three went back to him because it was just, it was undrinkable. Yeah. I still have one in the fridge, but go on. Yep. <laughs> but I, No, I love that. But but sometimes, yeah, you just want your beer to taste like a beer. And as we're coming out of the summer, like Dennis says, I love the IPA beers in the summer. But yeah, I'm kind of done with the citrus. And that's why I'm, I'm loving this Fest beer, because it tastes like a beer. 
Mm-hmm. Give me a good Trappist beer any day. Hey, Robert. That's well, I'm, I'm actually back upset. to the roots. <laughs> well, you, uh, my, my ancestry is Belgian, so the, I love a nice Belgian Trappist beer. I went to the mm-hmm. local bottle shop here yesterday to pick up a few. They have no Belgian Trappist beers up here in Port Perry. Oh, it's a travesty. Sacrilege. really love the book Barstool Theology and you've you kind of talked about kind of the, the genesis and where it came from and, and the history of the book I really love that in the book you pose these four questions they're kind of like the the four main parts of the book you know with whom do you drink what do you drink when do you drink and why do you drink right and you talk about how the way we answer all of these questions really affects our drinking experience and and how we approach beer. And again, you intertwine theology and all of that. So since we're here drinking together, why don't we start off with the first question, you know, how does who we drink with shape our drinking experience? I wanted to start with a question that I feel like anyone picking up the book could just nod and agree with and say, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because if I started off with why do you drink celebration, you might lose people there. Uh, all good evangelization, right? starts with the right types of questions, uh, with beauty, with then goodness and then truth. And with this one of with whom do we drink, that's oftentimes the first question we ask ourselves when we're making plans, to be honest, is who am I going to hang out with? Who's going to be there? Where am I going? And what are we going to do? So that's normally just the genesis of just gathering in the first place where alcohol is most often present. So I said, if we can get to that question first, then the rest of them will follow. And I just want to take a step back even of above these four questions people always talk about like oh is it right or wrong to drink alcohol and that was always what people would ask me whenever we would start talking about theology of alcohol i'm like i don't want to have that conversation anymore like i want to have a more enriching conversation that assumes people are choosing to drink and assuming others are choosing not to and assuming people are choosing to drink where's the guides to help these folks out, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. How do I have that fulfilling experience, avoid emptiness, uh, both in my soul and my glass, and we'll all be good. So starting with this, with whom do we drink? uh, I went to some Aristotle, which was fun. I started very philosophical. And he talks about a philosophy of friendship. And Paul Waddell was a professor at St. Norbert's College in northern Wisconsin. And he wrote some incredible books on friendship and the moral and the moral life. And he breaks it down to three types of friends. You've got friends of uh, usefulness. I say those are like your LinkedIn contacts, right? They're, they're good as long as they're useful, but they won't really stick up for you. Uh, you've got friends of pleasure, and that's Aristotle's translation. It's just friends you hang out with and are happy with. Uh, they're, it's pleasurable to be around them. It's enjoyable. You do things you like together, uh, like you go skiing together, you go hiking together. Uh, but beyond that, there's not a ton of that connective or depth there. And then there's friends of virtue. Uh, and he says that's where we want to grow into our friendships. So I thought, what if we took this concept of a friend of virtue, right? Two friends who are grown together or grown towards the same goal, And you combine that also with drinking together. 
what if those friends of virtue choose to go out together? What does that night look like? And I kept envisioning this throughout the book of what if you took this scenario and played it out throughout an evening at a bar? Like, how would I feel coming home from that? Uh, would I feel elated and feel like, wow, I feel full of life. I feel full of joy from these people I was with. Or do I leave being like, eh, that was fine, but it was kind of forgettable in a certain way. Uh, there wasn't that substance. I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it and I made a connection, but it just wasn't, there wasn't that thing there that drew us in further. So kind of like when I leave the bar after having a beer with Dennis. So that's what you're saying. Oh, yeah. no, I think he's saying the latter, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll leave I was going to say that's sorry. exactly how I feel when I go out with, you know, Robert and I've got another couple of friends in Toronto that I went to university with. Or you can just get a little bit deeper as well. And I think that's your point, eh, Trevor? It's not just for the pleasure, or it's certainly not a business LinkedIn type of thing you're using. It's where you can go deeper with that particular person. And that's yeah. that's a kind of a beautiful thing. Because and I think with it, when you're talking about friendship, women seem to do, and they they there's studies of this, women seem to do friends better. Men don't seem to do friendship as well. So that's something I think that men should pay close attention to. And that's where I think our stool theology became such a pertinent topic for me personally as a guy of I realized and it's not that I couldn't go to my neighbor and say, hey, do you just want to hang out and go on a walk? Uh, but I might get some weird looks, to be honest, from mm -hmm. complete strangers in my neighborhood. But if I have a second beer in the stroller and I see they have a stroller, I'm like, hey, I got a second beer. Would you like it? Immediately, it's a different connotation. Mm -hmm. of, and I don't know why we have that, but it's like, oh, it's inviting instead of weird. And now I have friends who are neighbors and the other day I was sick and I was not drinking and he's like, uh, Hey, do you want to come hang out? And I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm not feeling that great. He's like, Oh, we can just take it on backyard and chat. And I realized it was one of those moments where I'm like, Oh, we've transitioned from a friendship of enjoying sharing beers together, which was helpful. That was a helpful stepping stone to, Whoa, we're talking about what he's interested in. We're talking about me and the struggles of potty training. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was a really neat moment. And that's not to say too that everything has to be deep, right? I have to go to a bar and be like, I'm going to have really deep intentional conversation. Some nights is quite the opposite. Like I need those friends of virtue who know that I just need to hang out and chat about something totally unrelated right now. But for them to be cognizant of that and to share that in common with me in that moment, that's what's most important. Yeah. yeah. We and, missed and the whole I'll beer in the stroller. We should have uh, thought about that maybe 20 years ago. Eh? Robert, the beer in the stroller. I, I like that. When That's our fact. Michael was in the stroller, I used to do that. And we'd take the dog out. Me and the buddy, we'd take the dogs out for a walk and we'd have a beer on the go as that, well. Wow. I never had alcohol while I was taken. Maybe it was a fringe thing out in that the summer. You, you, you got to move out to the sticks, yeah, buddy. Maybe out to the, the sticks. <laughs> and I, I was this. just starting to say, say too that, you know, uh, I'll poke. At Dennis and I'll, I'll get a couple digs in. Um, we've known each other for 10 years and we have grown. And when we look back at the 10 years that we've known mm -hmm. each other and see how that relationship ha has grown to the point where we can sit down and just be very candid with each other. Mm -hmm. All right? We don't necessarily do it on the air when we're recording, right? but we've had some pretty deep conversations 
and, and truly have grown into the, those friends of virtue. Right. And uh, we don't have to talk about, right, Robert, we can talk about TFC or we can talk about the Leafs or in Robert's case, Montreal Canadiens. We can just talk about the simpler things. But yeah, it's nice to know you can talk about the deep things as well, for sure. And we can still drive ourselves home afterwards. Yeah. Too, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the key thing too, is I was getting to that point throughout this entire thing of you don't have to ask the question, is it right or wrong? If you start answering these other questions the right way, because if you're with the right people who are looking out for you, who are, you're just having good spirited conversation, you're not egging each other on in destructive ways or whatnot. Like those are the type of people that are going to help you answer that question. This was really fulfilling. This was good. This was something that drew me closer to God. Uh, and you don't even have to explicitly answer that question to yourself, mm-hmm. right? It might be weird to ask that out loud, but you, we have that sense of rightness, that sense of, oh, I feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be right now. And answering that question, who is that first step I found? So is it more difficult now in the in the age of social media or would it have been easier in myself and Robert's time at university before all this stuff happened, do you think, Trevor? Ooh, that's a really good question. Mm. So it's tough because COVID was such a changing thing in terms of how we gathered together. And I also think it showed our resilience, even in the midst of using social media through social media to gather with each other. Um, I had a lot of Skype barstool hangouts, Mm -hmm. uh, when I met with people and I think social media does distance us in some ways, right? Everyone has those arguments, but if nothing else, it's a way for my friend now, my neighbor to share his untapped beer ratings with me. Right. I, I love seeing how he rates beers and how he talks about them. Uh, and that's the pleasure of social media there, or, my brother-in-law being able to share like, Hey, here are the beers I'm making. And for me, it'll do more be passively watching those things instead of having to actively be seeking that out. Uh, Cause people aren't really good at reaching out uh, in a social media age, right? They like being reached out to. And I think when it comes to these friendships uh, as a young adult, those are things that are really challenging for a lot of people to make. And if beer can be one of those like lenses into which we can talk to people or the first conversation, like, hey, what are you having? Right? Easy, easy conversation. I told that to my brother when he was younger. I'm like, look for the easy conversations. Like, what kind of beer is that? Um, tell me about it. And then from there, you can talk about other things. So it's very much a stepping stone. Yeah, and really, that fellowship aspect is so key to developing the relationships to be able to go deeper. So you ask, who are we going to drink with? So then the next thing, and like you're you're saying, you're asking, what beer is that? So like, what do you drink is, is the next question. What's in your glass? Right. <laughs> yeah. So and how, how how does that affect what, what we're pouring, whether it's the Scugog beer from Lindsay or the Fest beer or uh, the beer from your brother-in-law's basement? How does or the non the non alcoholic beer as well, which I think you mentioned. Or do you still have that sitting in your fridge there that you? No, I gave, I gave it to my nephew. I gave it to my nephew. He was quite appreciative of that Robert. Yeah, so he was quite happy with that. He says it was really good too. Mm, there's some really good non alcoholic beers they're making. Yeah, there, there are. But why are they not half the price of regular beers? I can't figure that one out. I might as well just buy a regular beer. But go on. I digress. Sure. Sorry, Trevor. <laughs> No, I, I think there's a chapter header that I always still laugh at when I flip through the book. It says, nobody shotguns craft beers. And 
I think that just about sums it up is the the level of abuse of alcohol with beers that are meant to be abused, right? <laughs> uh, they, they, they really pitch themselves in that way. And only recently have the marketing really tried to slow down on that. But in the past, it was, hey, if you drink more, we make more money. So therefore, we're a business and let's make this happen. And craft beer has been much more about we're not, we don't even have to say drink responsibly at the end of our commercials, right? That That's kind of a given because mm-hmm. you can't drink irresponsibly with this beer. You'll probably just feel a little like fuller bloated at the end of it if you have three gingerbread uh, beers. And so never going to get it, hardly make it through <laughs> half, never going to make it to three. <laughs> <laughs> they, they succeeded, right? Uh, they, they, slipped, they paused you. No, but the whole concept is... Uh, if we have something in our glass that's far more artistic, then we tend to slow down. Uh, it calls us to really be present to it in a somewhat unusual way, to, not trying to sound too hippie here. But it, when you have flavors that jump out to you and you have people that care so deeply about them, it's hard to miss those things, right? It's like walking through an art gallery and choosing to only look down at your phone. Like, why would you do that? you're missing such an opportunity here. And I get some people really don't like some craft beer flavors and that's okay. Right. There's some good nuance to other types of beers uh, that you can find. But I like asking that question again, what is in your glass? Because again, if you have the right people around you, you have something that's artistic in front of you, you're probably going to slow down you're going to focus on a conversation around that or something a little more deep, uh, rich in conversation. And I really like what you were saying there mm-hmm. as far as the, the nuanced flavors. Uh, Dennis and I were hanging out with a former colleague the other day, and his neighbor has a craft brewery. And our wow. friend was saying to this brewer, I don't like all of the beers you have. Mm-hmm. And the answer was, well, if you liked all of the beers that I'm producing, I wouldn't be doing my job properly because I need to mm-hmm. provide for such a wide range of palates. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so as much as I say that there's some beers out there in the craft beer world that I just can't drink, there is a whole wide range that I do love, right? And and I like that too. You talk about it as being a, a work of art and you just mm-hmm. slow down and you you enjoy that. And it's difficult, Robert, and you'll agree with this, to go back to the, and we'll just name them on it, to the Buds and the Coors Lights and the Labats and the Molsons when you've discovered these types of craft brews. And you say something about the temperature, I think, and the aroma and keeping it cold or something like that. And that lends itself maybe to just kind of, you know, doing the downing of the beers as quickly as possible or something like that, or not really caring about the particular beer you're drinking, Trevor? Yeah, I realized that. (laughs) I learned that beer has the most flavor uh, at a certain temperature. And if it's too cold, you actually don't get some of the flavor. It doesn't release the notes, the aroma notes on on the nose. It doesn't release some of the flavor in your mouth. So if it's super cold, then you Mm -hmm. lose a lot of the flavor. So if you go any place that serves you an ice cold beer in a chilled mug... You can probably say no thanks because you're you're essentially being told, hey, our beer is not good. Here, you should have mm-hmm. some. You're not going to taste it. Uh, and any beer that says only drink when the mountains are cold, blue is essentially saying <laughs> don't taste our beer. Right? Not to the throw any brands blue. under a bus or anything. <laughs> yes, right? not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might taste our beer. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a beer that tastes like a beer. There's a time and a place for it, right? But there's so many breweries now that are making those styles of beer 
that are really incredible with a different level of nuance that lead to a different conversation. So, so you're saying the a, British British have it with the bitters and the ales. They you know ooh. they have the right idea with you know a little bit more room temperature type thing, which I could never get into. Where bears like this, myself in the summer, we do want it cold as possible. A nice crisp cold. Yeah, but it's a good point. Point well taken. Now, and when you yeah. go to the stouts in the, in the porters, you know, mm-hmm. they should be a little bit warmer. And I even heard of a an old English gentleman that used to take a hot poker out of the fire and dip it in his Guinness. Okay. So. <laughs> hey, you got to try everything, right? Yeah. yeah. No, but, but you, you uh, look at some of the labels too. You you see on the labels that it will say what temperature you're supposed to be serving it at. Yeah. And again, with this, like anything, like I said, with the friendship thing of those people who go into every conversation wanting deep intentionality or the people who go in and say, ooh, that needs to be in a snifter glass at 54 degrees or I'm going to be unhappy. Like there's extremes to this too, right? Yeah. Um, hey. I get that, right? If it's a, if it's like a special occasion, I have a friend from out of town and we really want to be fun about it. Sure, why not? Let's try it. But there's some general, <laughs> within virtue, uh, vices both sides of the realm here. In both excess and deficit is where vice lives. Virtue's in that nice sweet spot. And bring so your subtle ta- back into the play. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're talking about the different flavors of beer and the, and kind of the different times of the year that we like to have mm. different beer. As we said, I love the IPA in the summer. We talked about today up here in the Toronto area. It was gray. It was cold. Mm. I want to say it was 10 degrees. I would say so for you, I would say about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Uh, it, we say it's a dunkel kind of day. It's a dark beer kind of day. And so that kind of goes into the the next chapter that you're at about, you know, when do you drink, right? And kind of the the different seasons Mm -hmm. of our beer drinking. Yeah. Man, every single time I need like a devotion at work or something where I need to reflect with people, I find the seasons are the number one thing that people just get right? We all experience them. We all feel them, right? They're the first thing we think about. Uh, they're the first notification we get on our watch or our phone is uh, what it's going to be outside. And they're what we look forward to most, or they're what we uh, think fondly about in the past. And it's just one of those things of, yes, the seasons. So when you think about beer too, I thought, well, it doesn't make sense. I think this is a funny story. I was playing Frisbee with some friends on a beach in Milwaukee, and I was just of drinking age. And a friend of mine stopped at uh, a liquor store out on the way because we're like, oh, we're going to throw a Frisbee on the beach. It's a summer day. This is perfect. We could have a cold beer. And he picked up like an Oscar Blues or something or like a that's actually an IPA. But he picked up this beer and we cracked it open. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this could be great. And we all started drinking and looked at each other. And we're like, what are we doing right now? And it was a stout. Ooh. And it was just really rich and chocolatey. And we're like, this is wrong. And I think that was the first time I experienced the seasonality of beer of like, this is not right. Like, I could do this, but I don't want to. And I think more and more as I matured then too, and my personal life, I realized there's time and place for more and more things of who I am in certain situations of being jovial and excitable versus more serious, stern and targeted, right? Focused. Uh, but then also experiencing my emotions of, ooh, I need to be incredibly empathetic here. So I essentially said, if we can find something that's not 
personal focused, right? My emotions, my seasons of life, right? Seasons of life and death, seasons of excitement, new relationships, ends of relationships. I don't want to start there with understanding the seasons because that can be painful, right? That can be some <laughs> real unearthing. But if I can start with something really inconsequential, like the beer in my life of, hey, I feel more like this beer tonight. Uh, my wife will see me in front of the fridge and I'm like, ah, oh, what do I feel more like tonight? And it's like seemingly inconsequential. But then when I have to apply that same emotional energy at a different point to who do I have to be right now for my kids? Do I need to be more orderly or do I need to be more uh, compassionate? Again, need to be both orderly and compassionate, but what do I need to be in this situation? I've reflected in a very inconsequential way over a, between a stout and a lager. Yeah. Uh, so. yeah, and those can be some pretty heavy questions when you think about that. But it, you say it seems inconsequential, but truly what you choose for that season it plays a big role into how you're going to experience that beer and how you're going to feel about yourself and then how you're going to present yourself to the, the world for the rest of the day. Yeah. And I invented this, I not invented, but I applied the term snowbird, which is a very common concept from where I lived in Wisconsin mm -hmm. of people who uh, were affluent enough to have a home in a temperate climate uh, like Florida or Arizona that they would escape to in the winter. They would escape the Wisconsin winter and then they would come back for the Wisconsin summer. So they would always have this beautiful weather wherever they went. Yeah, you mentioned and, that in the book. Sorry, Trevor. We got about a half a million Canadian snowbirds as well who do the same thing. But go on. Yeah. Dennis will yeah. be there in a year. Yeah, I'll be half my family's <laughs> are snowbirds. So go go on to make oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm I was talking to my wife about that. I'm like, oh, what would be your ideal state? And I'm like, I think I, I, I could do this whole snowbird thing, but I would I would like to be there for some of the winter, right? Uh, but in essentially what I'm arguing against mm -hmm. in the book is the people who choose to only be snowbirds and avoid certain uh, spectrums of emotion or spectrums of experience of saying, oh, I know I will be comfortable if I limit myself mm -hmm. to this realm. But if, if I open myself up to something greater and the good example of that is like beers, right? I know I'm comfortable if I only drink this one light beer that I've always had since the 1980s when it was one of 80 beers, right? But now there's tens and hundreds of thousands of beers. Where do I even begin? I could have a bad one. I had an IPA. Someone told me that, that they're like, oh, you'll love this. And I hated it. Like I've always been led astray. I'm going to stick to like my the ginger beer. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Like, no, that's a really good point because Robert let me. I, I think I've had an IPA and I didn't really like the first one. And then I've had a couple more and just let myself go. Like you say, 80, I think, microbreweries in 1983 to over 4,000. You got to put yourself out there and try a few. And that's exactly, I guess, what you're talking about. Don't close yourself in a little box or something, right? So, so your blue box, Dennis, needs to look like mine, right? So, they got. Our local squires, so the like the Knights of Columbus were doing a bottle drive. So I took over my big bag of empties for them. Mm -hmm. And the guy who took had to, it had in. To he, hire a U-Haul, but go on. <laughs> and the guy taking it in, he's like, I didn't realize there was that many kinds of beers. Because mm -hmm. I'll buy two or three of each one at a time. Because I'd like trying the different beers. Like there, there's probably two dozen beer in my fridge. Mm -hmm. And there's maybe three or four that are doubles 
Yeah. It's all different singles and it's, it's fantastic. It's great to, to go out and broaden our horizons. Right. Yeah. And so I applied that to just the seasonality of life of if we can start to expand that just in beer, right. Of one area that we feel so emotionally attached, maybe for no reason, right. Maybe we just like saying we are that person, right. The beer snowbird of I, I stay in this one season all year long. And I know I'm comfortable here, but if we expand that of, Yes, it might be cold, but then you can experience a different type of beauty. Or yes, it's going to be wet in the spring, but there's something different there you'll experience. Uh, God is inviting us in all of those seasons of our lives, even of seasons of life and death, right? Uh, but how do we be present to that in that moment? Like I had a phone call with a close friend of mine the other day whose his dad just passed away, and he asked me if he could go over his eulogy with me to practice it because um, he knows I like to speak and I like to think through that kind of stuff. And it was just one of those moments of, oh, my gosh, I get to be with him and journeying this moment where he's reflecting on the season of death in his life. Um, but in the midst of that, in the writing of the eulogy, there was so much life the season of life that was being celebrated in that, that it was everything in one. And I got off that call. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is all of that. Like he expanded it to the point of tears, right? Of I am hurt right now. I am experiencing a pain that the snowbird might not. But in doing that, we connected. We saw something really real. And then we grew together through it. That's absolutely beautiful. That is absolutely nice. beautiful. And so this kind of brings us to the the final question that you ask in the book is, you know, why do you drink, right? Why do we go out and, and have a beer? Aside from the fact that we're on the Pints and Pews podcast, so, you know, it, it's normal for us to have a pint. We while, have to. We're Otherwise, we have no show. We, mu we must. <laughs> I've heard it's like the Dr. Bronner's, like, uh the one cure-all for receding hairlines is what beer is. So I hear that's why so many men drink it. So yeah, let, let me write not, that down again. Sorry. It's not working for either one of us. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I'm playing. I had to get one joking at that. Oh my God, that's perfect. Funny. Perfect. And would it be the same as you, as, as you pick up on his question, uh, Trevor, why do you drink? Would it be the same if you were drinking non-alcoholic beer or wine or spirits? Does it, can it, you know, can you move between the different beverages? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I used beer because at the time I was writing this, the craft beer culture was just taking off. Okay. Uh, I was doing ministry on the subject between 2014, 2016. This came out in 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, so really at the time at its peak, it was riding that wave. Right now we're kind of accustomed to all the craft beers. Uh, but are. really now we're seeing that across all these different areas where yeah, even non-alcoholic beers, you could read this book through that lens. I have some friends I work with who are uh, avid. They do not drink. They do not touch alcohol. And I said, read this, but through the lens of coffee. Uh, that's been my world mm. recently is there's more flavor profiles in coffee um, than there are even in wine. Uh, again, but you miss some of the conviviality parts. You miss some of uh, that. I don't want to say drunkenness of the spirit, but there's a lot of theological imagery behind um, that slight change that actually under that's undergone in our uh, in our heads when we drink. So, mm -hmm. 
but I want to get to that question the right. Why do we drink? You asked that one. And I ended with this one. This is the biggest chapter. I kind of wanted to ramp up to this as being the peak of where I was excited to talk about. And it's the most theological out of all of it. It might start more philosophical, more secular, and then moves to the space of we celebrate the people we are with, not the action of drinking. And that was the biggest question when I would work with students and do ministry was, hey, what did you celebrate when you went out? Like, I'm, I want to hear about your night out. Like, tell me about it. Uh, tell me first where you went. Tell me what you drank. Like, who were you with? But what were you celebrating? What were you doing going out? Because going out's a big activity, at least now as a young adult with kids. Like, if I'm going out, it is for a reason, right? I don't, we don't just go out. I, but in college, it was much more of a, we would just go out to drink, right? We're going out to have beer. And I really challenged a lot of the people I worked with and a lot of the students of saying, we don't go out just to drink. We don't celebrate an action, right? That's somewhat an end in itself. It's not its own end. Uh, our end, therefore, should be something greater, the celebration. So celebrating people was a really beautiful concept of how do we do that in small ways? Because that's what we celebrate at the Mass. We are celebrating Christ, uh, present in the Eucharist, in the Word, in the, the body of the people gathered, and in the priest. Uh, we're celebrating. So I create this deep connection between celebrating the Eucharist and celebrating at a party, and how those two can very much take on a different form. And also called out how we're not very good with prayer as Christians uh, and its fullness, right? We're really good at asking for forgiveness and for praying for things. We're not really good at saying thank you and celebrating and cheering, right? These happy, joyful prayers. And I think of growing up, my parents were really good about this. As I mentioned at the beginning, every night they made us say something we were grateful for and also ask for forgiveness and to look forward to the future. And I realized so many people that I know, especially a lot of the um, more evangelical Christians now that I work with, they don't understand this concept of joy in their faith. Um, it's very much joy on the other end of suffering, right? Of, ooh, now I'm out of this. But it's mostly kind of gray. Uh, it's a lot of forgiveness. It's a lot of petitional prayer. And it's like, no, celebration is a form of prayer. Uh, and beer can, and at this point, I've kind of not dropped beer, but it's more of this concept of uh, celebrating together. And alcohol is just a piece of that, right? It's It can't be, or it doesn't even have to be, but as you read the book, it kind of just says, hey, we, we're now at a different trajectory. And you know that where the place of that is. Yeah, and that the the beer is just kind of an, an add-on to the celebration. And it's not the thing that is being celebrated, and it's not the, the focal point of that. And I, I really like what you were talking about there too, because sometimes I I wonder, you know, us as almost an uncatechized generation. I know I was never explicitly taught to give prayers of thanksgiving as such, and especially prayer of worship, mm. right? And, and the, the greatness of God. That was just never explicitly taught mm -hmm. in, in our lives. But I really like this concept that, yeah, we need to be celebrating people. And, and when we're doing that, it, it will then temper the the misuse of the alcohol that goes into the celebrations, 
Yeah. My favorite story around this, my little brother still tells it to this day, is one of the things I recommend in the book is to toast, to give toasts. And that's something I'm going to encourage you two to do. And you've done at different points in this. Is in certain ways, you've toasted each other. I've gotten to see it on camera. <laughs> You'll say something and give like a little nod and it'll be like an informal toast to each other. And my younger brother and I, we he visited me in Dayton, Ohio. He's still up in Wisconsin. And we went out to this really neat new bar that makes incredible artistic mixed drinks. It just feels like you're transported out of Dayton, Ohio, because we are not known for our craft <laughs> here. And uh, we saw this group of three other guys across the area from us, and they were a bit younger. You could tell that they were like celebrating something. Uh, so I we made small talk at one point, and they're like, oh, it's this one guy's birthday. He's in town visiting. And I saw on the menu that they had some like um, fun beer that I knew that was local. So I ordered, I was like, would you guys be okay if I ordered you a round of beers to celebrate your friend? And they're like, obviously young guys saying, are you okay with us ordering a round of beers? There's no question about that. that. Old guys aren't going to say no either. Right. Yeah. I guess anyone. Yeah, no. So they said yes. And then they invited us and we played this game. uh, It's a dice game called left, right, center. And you essentially have these little tokens and whoever ends the game with the last token wins, but they, they slowly go away. The tokens go away when they get put in the center. And when you roll the center one, I changed the rule that instead of, because some people make it a drinking game and we made it much a little bit different. Um, But when you put one in the middle, the rule that we created is you have to make a toast for anything. And there's, I think, 40 tokens in this game. So you're playing this fun game. You're passing tokens. You're sharing beers. You're just like playing this game. But every about 40 seconds, 30 seconds in this game, someone is forced to make a toast. And it stops everything. And the toasts are pretty funny things, right? One guy was like, ah, to the bluebird outside my window this morning. And we're all like, ooh, good toast. That was really nice. And But about 10 of those toasts that night were those friends for their friend's birthday, for him. And before we left the bar, that one guy came and found me. His friends were leaving and he comes back and he looked me in the eye and he he just said, thank you for making that really special for me. Uh, that was my highlight of the evening. And I know we have a long way to go. <laughs> it was pretty early in the night. And I'm like, whoa, for him, he was celebrated. His friends got a chance to celebrate him. And all it cost me was three beers saying, hey, let's play this game and about 40 toasts, 10 of which were really meaningful. The other 30 were probably pretty goofy. But it's that idea of this is a way that we already are comfortably celebrating each other. Let's do more of it. I love that idea. I love that. We're going to have to take that out the the next time that we uh, meet up there, Dennis. Right. We'll we'll have have to do that. No, spontaneous uh, and prepared toasts. These are these are the spontaneous ones. That's right. We kind of yeah. We know all the prepared toasts. We go to a lot of weddings and stuff, mm-hmm. but we don't do many of the spontaneous ones. So that'll be on our next uh, next agenda, Robert, when we're out and about. So now, Trevor, as we uh, kind of start to wrap things up. Where would you like to point people to find out more about Trevor Gunlock and where can they find Barstool Theology? And actually, and, and as I'm saying your name, I hope I got the Good your luck. last name, Gunlock. I'm loving it. Hey, it's, it's been we, anglicized, right? You're going to say it, it a different way. Been. 
How they would you pronounce the umlaut? But yeah. now it's just gunlock. So gunlock. it's much. It's a lot more flat. But I'll let you keep saying the more exciting. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, the book can be found on pretty much any major book website that you can find books. Uh, you can go to our Sunday visitor to get it direct from the publisher if you'd like. It's available on Amazon. Again, anywhere else you're looking online, uh, it's available in ebook and also paper copy. And uh, you can get your hand on a pretty reasonable used copy on Amazon if you need, uh, or talk to friends and share it. Again, it's best shared over a pint. Uh, and to find me, you can find me on. Uh, you can find me on my LinkedIn, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. not as exciting, but the best way to get in touch with me for uh, professional contacts, doing talks, uh, coming and sharing about doing ministry around it. Uh, and I still have my Instagram page, not as active, that's Barstool Theology, uh, but that is a way that you can get a hold of me through there. So yeah, well, really appreciate it. Any any more books in the offing or, or just talks now and, and, and spending time at home with yeah, your wife and I, children, I guess? Yeah, no, that was, I took a back seat with this book. It published immediately as my first daughter was born mm-hmm. and uh, kind of doing a whole publicity tour and everything just between COVID and her being born, it didn't happen. Uh, so I really appreciate things like this to be able to keep spreading the message about it. I think our marketing team just kind of looked at me and said, well, here we go. We don't know how long this will last. And I'm like, well, I have a kid anyways, so that's okay. Uh, so I do have two books, actually. One hmm. that I just signed a publishing deal with uh, that's coming out early next year. And the other one I'm uh, in talks with people right now. Uh, the one that's actually coming out next year is probably something that nobody listening to this on Barstool Theology would be interested in. It's not on beer nor theology. Uh, I took a pivot in my career towards uh process engineering, uh, lean process improvement methodologies uh, when it comes to empowering staff and encouraging people to use their voice to change small processes across an entire organization. So uh, it's called Lean Empowerment. Again, that's coming out with uh, a smaller subset of Routledge publishing called Productivity Press in March. Uh, I worked on that a lot with my work and my, my job. But the one I'm most excited about is one that I finished writing and it's called Mary and Martha. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's all about the story of Mary and Martha, but looking at leadership and management through the lens of those two women. And I just am obsessed with the concept right now. I'm looking for a publisher. And if nothing else, if I look at these three books that I've been able to write, that's the one uh, that I feel most called to talk about uh, to sit with people. Uh, this one really served a deep purpose in my life at the time. Uh, and I still love talking about it. The process improvement one, again, is just an opportunity for me to write about something I love at work. But that Mary and Martha one just kind of poured forth from me. And I'm like, I can't stop this, right? This is something that needs to be shared. So fingers crossed that one gets picked up. Well, we'll definitely say a, a prayer of intercession for, <laughs> for Mary and Martha and the, the the leadership book. I really look forward to actually reading reading that as well when it comes out. Just before we let you go here as well, Trevor, uh, we always like to to let our guests know. We'll get your address uh, once we're done recording here, and we'll Love get it. you the official Pines and Pews ball cap out to you in the mail. Mm-hmm. So you can uh, you 
You could use it in the summers or maybe the winters in Dayton. It's probably it's not as cold as Wisconsin, but I would imagine it's still pretty cold. It, it, it doesn't come with ear flaps. There, yeah, buddy. no flaps. Oh. <laughs> But you okay, could wear it over to your brother-in-law's where you're doing the home brew and you can uh, you know, make them jealous over there. So Ooh, I will. That's perfect. So as we finish, then I would like to propose a toast. Dennis, Trevor, a toast to faith and fellowship to friendships that are formed over a pint, but that continue on for a lifetime. May God bless you both, gentlemen. Cheers. Well, another good guest, Robert Barstool, Theology. Wow, a very, very interesting gentleman and a very informative. And I loved his talk. I loved everything he spoke about in the book. I'll have to reread it. Actually, I read bits of it and I'm going to have to read it. Actually, is it your book? So I'll just borrow this book and you can buy yourself a new book. I was going to say, I'm going to have like the five other books I've lent yeah, you. I'm going to have yeah, to buy myself another copy. My desk. I'll have to get those back to you someday, Robert. It's never happening. What does they say? Never lend out a book you want to have back. Is that, is that what they say? Yeah, but I love the I've way he spoke about beer and friendship and just beer as a centerpiece, but just having, you know what I mean? That conversation with people. I think that's an important thing that we take away from. Here. I could have sat there for hours having mm-hmm. that conversation mm-hmm. with him and just yeah. to get more in depth in, in a lot of those things. Cause it, it seemed as we went through, we would ask the question mm-hmm. and we would start to just kind of glean a little bit off the surface but then it was time to move on to the next question. You had to go on. Yeah, really could do show, almost a, a part two. An episode for each one, each one. of those yep. sections, right? Yep. And you so, know what I thought? Oh, maybe the second book. But obviously the second book is more of a business book. The third book sounds interesting. Uh, yeah, where Mary's what, faith and, and business. When, when that Mary. one comes out, we should yeah. uh, think about having him back March on. Or something. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was beautiful. Buddy, how was your Scugog beer? That was excellent. There's nothing. Oh, my Lindsay Brewing Company. Yeah, with the Scugog River. Lock 33. It was excellent. How was yours? Oh, I left, absolutely I beautiful. Uh, I have just a little bit left here in the bottom of my hourglass. But, you know, the Fest beer, like I said, it was everything that a Bavarian lager. Lagers are meant to be clean and crisp, but the Bavarian lagers just have that little bit more flavor to them. They've just got a little bit more oomph. They always have the oomph. It it tastes like a real beer. Yeah, it did. Oh, I could imagine. It looks so good in uh, you know across Zoom. But next time you do a, a toast and a good one at that, make sure you know just give me a heads up to save a little bit, and in, in my beer for the end of the because it was there was kind well, of, it really came out of nowhere because all yeah. of a sudden you know Trevor started talking about you know the the last art of giving a toast and kind of cool to do a though toast. I never thought about that so it, hey. it just dawned on me right there and then to let let's do this toast yeah. But you know, I usually finish my beer before yourself, right? So you have to keep that in mind. But never thought about that, you know, when you're out with your, when we're out together or out with friends or something like that, toast, you know, the only time you hear toast are at, you know, maybe at dinners with family, certainly weddings, wakes. Exactly. But I also like too, where he said, you know, that they were having these frivolous toasts, you know, yeah, 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 toast the bluebird that was outside my window this morning. But on the other hand, I think that's so beautiful, just toasting the beautiful. the beauty and greatness of God's creation. Absolutely. And we don't do that enough either. No, we don't. You know, and toasting maybe the Leafs' upcoming Stanley Cup victory in the f- spring of 2024. 
Well, maybe this, not. The, the spring of 3024? <laughs> uh, spring of someday, someday, someday. Robert. That's a, a, a great song from a great rock group out of, uh, out of Newmarket. But uh, again, we digress. Dennis, buddy, as always, the time seems to have flown by and my hourglass is now empty. Yes, always a pleasure, Robert. Both the pint and the conversation, and mine is too, of course. Especially the pints this evening, even yes. with the Scugog Lake water. Scugog River water. Yes, but always a pleasure to talk about our Catholic faith as well. Very true, very true. And just before we wrap up here, my friend, perhaps there's one small favor we could ask of our listeners. If you could take a quick moment and a couple of clicks to follow the Pints and Pews podcast on your favorite platform and give us a review. And while you're at it, give us a like on Facebook and drop us a line there or at pintsandpews at gmail.com. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners. Yes, and maybe stop by catholicmoment.ca to peruse our caps, check out our caps, as well as maybe one of your books, which are always for sale on catholicmoment.ca. If you want to be uh, as good looking as our guests, well, come exactly. By, you up. have you have to. He's got a third book coming out, Robert. So you'll have to get getting get on that manuscript for that third book to come out. But definitely, we'll uh, let's chat just say, again. let's just say things are in the in the works there. In friend. the works, okay. We'll see. Well, I think he's coming out in March. So you, you got. So you, I don't think it's going to come out by then, though. No. We're working on it. We're oh, working. good. Excellent. Excellent. Now, finally, Dennis, why don't you remind our listeners of the wise words of G.K. Chesterton? In Catholicism, the pint, the pipe, and the cross can all fit together. God bless. Take care, Robert.